you're watching, Dan, the beard worked. Well done. <laughs> Let me pray. We're coming to God's word now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you're the God who speaks. And you always speak of the same thing. You speak of your Son, the Lord Jesus, through your word, by the power of your Spirit. So, Father, wherever we are this morning with you, whatever our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, I please speak the truth we need into our hearts, that we might come to him, that we might know him, that we might know your love through him, that we might love him in return. By your Spirit, work this miracle now, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. So what do you want God to do for you this morning? I mean, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him to do for you? What's top of your list of priorities? I suspect some of us would want him to sort out, say, the world that we're living, that the conflicts, that's pretty high, isn't it, in the news? Maybe it'd be the blessed Brexit. You just want it to go away. Or maybe more seriously, the brutal conflicts we see still in Syria as the Turks go in and, and butcher the Kurdish people. Wouldn't it be amazing if God brought political freedom to our world? There'd be no more oppression, no more fear, no more bloodshed. Or maybe uh, you're thinking closer to home, and perhaps you're struggling financially. You haven't got the money to pay the bills, or you haven't got the money to do that extension, or you haven't got the money for that, that holiday that you just desperately need. You, you might think financially a little less about yourself and maybe about the millions who are in poverty in the world and want God to sort that out. Or maybe you're like me and dropping your mobile phone and watching it crack troubles your heart more than the thousands of children who will die today because they're malnourished. Maybe you've got a more religious request for God. Uh, you'd long for him to work in, in more miraculous power in your life, in the life of your friends. I mean, it'd be so much easier, wouldn't it, to believe in Jesus, to, to tell people about him on the doorstep this Halloween, to be known as his follower if there were more miracles, if there were more healings, more supernatural things done in his name. I met a man recently who uh, went to a church where their strapline was, no miracles, no Jesus. I suggested to him, isn't the greatest miracle someone becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he, he looked at me, I was sort of a bit disappointed, like I really hadn't got the message. Well, wouldn't it be so much easier if today no one walked out of our building still sick or depressed or disabled? Wouldn't that be great? Now, I'm not saying that wanting any of those things is wrong. But they happen to be the prayer points of the crowd that Jesus meets in John chapter 6. A crowd who we're going to see by the end of next week walk away from him because he's not the God they're looking for. In fact, they're probably the world's agenda for our lives, aren't they? Political freedom, material comfort, physical health, they're what the world says we need. And maybe the world even says you need a God who's got to prove himself if he's worth bothering with. I fear that's the agenda of the many churches in the United Kingdom today. But they're not top of God's agenda. We've seen God's agenda again and again in John's Gospel. John lays it out at the end of the Gospel in his strapline, John 20, 31. But these things, he says, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So week by week, we've been seeing Jesus do signs that point to him as the Christ, as the Son of God. And we've seen that he wants us to believe that so we can have this, this most precious thing called life, real life, true life in relationship with God now and forever. Now that should have excited the, the Jews of Jesus' day, but because they knew the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and they knew that God had promised one day soon the Christ, God's King, would come and he'd rescue them. And that should excite them because for the last 600 years, they've been living under oppression by one superpower or another. Uh, the latest one at the time of John's Gospel is the Romans. They longed for the day when they would be free. So it's no wonder that Jesus is a bit of a crowd puller. We saw that in verse 2 of our reading. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing those who are ill. And the question is, if this is the rescuer, what sort of rescuer is it going to be? And two things to see this morning. Here's the first thing. We see the world's rescuer versus or opposed to God's rescuer. Because Jesus in John 6 takes a bit of time out to teach his first followers. And in verse 4, John tells us a key piece of information to make sense, really, of what happens in this chapter. Have a look at verse 4 with me. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Passover was the time of year that the Jews remembered God rescuing them from slavery in the, the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. That was the great rescue event of the Old Testament as God took them out of Egypt. Uh, there were lots of promises in the Old Testament that when God's Messiah, his Christ, his King came, his new rescue would be a bit like a, a new exodus. That, that's how you spot him. So, so around this time of year, all the bedtime stories in the Jewish households were about the angel of death passing over. And how the Jewish firstborn had been saved because they'd killed a lamb and daubed its blood round the doors. They're about God getting them miraculously through the Red Sea on dry land so they weren't destroyed by the Egyptian army. They're about how the Lord had fed them in the desert with, with bread from heaven called, called manna. So when Jesus, in, in verse 5, asks about eating... It should have been reasonably familiar. Do you see that verse 5? He says to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Here are a lot of God's people. We're in the middle of nowhere. We've got nothing to eat. You see, Jesus isn't just responding to hungry people. No, he says, verse 6, John tells us, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus here isn't testing the disciples' forward planning nor their knowledge of the local shopping facilities, nor whether they're very good at sharing. No, he's testing whether they trust him, whether they realize he is God's rescuer. And just like the Lord said in Exodus 16, just before he gave the manna, he said this, he did it to test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. We're looking at a miraculous feeding in the desert. Uh, Philip, the disciple, he's not grasped the power of the person he's sitting with. Do you see that in verse 7? He says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, Andrew, he's not got an idea. Verse 9, 
Here, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go amongst so many? Uh, that's, by the way, five poor man's bread loaves, more like your crusty GI roll from Lidl, and five small dried fish, two small dried fish. This crowd, with that meager meal, are just about to get a picnic they'll never forget. Do you see down verse 10? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. A bite, 5,000 men were there. 5,000 blokes might mean as many as 20,000 people when you add women and children in. But hey, feeding 5,000 is a big enough miracle, isn't it? And do you see the detail, verse 11? Now the festival of the Jewish... Sorry, verse 11... Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish, as much as they wanted. John rubs it in in the very next verse, verse 12. They all had enough. And so we don't miss the scale of the event of what he's done. Verse 13, John tells us, So they gathered them and filled 12 basketfuls with the pieces of five barley loaves, left over by those who'd eaten. Well, how does that work? Twelve big basketfuls of leftovers from five small loaves, having fed between five and 20,000 people. No wonder the people say in verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. The Lord had promised Moses that after him would come a prophet like him, and the people go, this is the one. We're being fed miraculously in the desert. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, the, the Christmas lights were going up in Surbiton yesterday as we drove around. Well, this is a bit like, you know, it's December the 25th, and you're standing in your garden, or 24th, and you see Blake bloke, white beard, red suit, in sleigh, flying across sky, attached to airborne reindeer. And you go, I think that might be Santa. <laughs> That's what's going on here. God's promised a prophet. He'll be like Moses. He'll feed them in the desert. This must be him. So, so let's put him in charge, they say. He'll sort out the Romans. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing what they intended, that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Do you see their mindset? This guy's got enormous power. I think he can do something for us. But that's not what Jesus is about. So he slips away. They don't think, oh, here's Jesus, God's king. Maybe we should ask him what we should do. No, they think, here's Jesus, God's king. I know what he should do for me. Now, the evidence for Jesus' identity in John's gospel, it's just coming thick and fast. And you might be here this morning and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, I want to encourage you again to look at the, the evidence. Uh, we've already talked about our Christianity Explore course. It, it started last Thursday, but you could come on this Thursday evening between 8 and 9.30 in the center and look at some evidence for Jesus. Uh, ben mentioned that we'd love you on, on the way out to take one of these Gospels of John Ben's favorite gospel to give away at Halloween time. It's just this book with evidence about Jesus. If you'd like to, to read it with someone, maybe one of your friends here who's a Christian could sit down and do 
a little thing we call word one-to-one where you just read John's gospel. The evidence about Jesus is here. I mean, look, there's, there's more in this chapter. Look, look what happens next. You see, the disciples set off across a lake now without Jesus. It's dark, and they're pretty in the dark as far as their understanding goes. Things begin to get rough. And so we read in verse 18, a strong wind was blowing and the, the waters got rough. They, they've been straining at the oars. It's against the wind. And then verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat. Now, I got pretty tired on one of those paddle boards. I had a go, thought they were quite cool, quite hard to stand up in the ocean. Well, I say ocean, the channel this summer. You know, 10 minutes with that, I was, I was exhausted. These guys are shattered. And I love the detail in, in verse 3 or 4, uh, uh, in verse 19, 3 or 4 miles. I imagine John writing this down going, well, Peter said it was 3 miles, but I tell you what, I felt like it was 4. I've been pulling for hours. And then Jesus comes. But, but look how they react. Jesus approached the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Whenever anyone has an encounter with God in the Old Testament, well, they're terrified. Because he's so powerful, so pure, so other, so holy. And fear is a very sensible reaction, isn't it? If you see, if you see a bloke walking on the water towards you, until you know whether he's on your side or not. And so Jesus he gives the most repeated command in the Bible. He says, don't be afraid. And then literally he says to them, I am. I am. That's who gets into the boat with them. He's echoing the Exodus again. I am is the name that God gave to Moses, that he was to tell the people, to reassure them. I am who I am. That's my name. I am the God who has always been with you. I am the God who will always be with you. I parted the Red Sea so that you could escape the Egyptians. And now I'm walking on the sea so that you reach the other side safely. And with God on your side, well, life seems a bit better, doesn't it? Verse 21, then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, there was a book about the Queen not so long ago by, uh, by one of the people very close to her, her former press secretary. And it sort of tells the human side of the royal family, um, uh, of how the Queen serves picnics, apparently, out of, of Tupperware, little plastic boxes, of how she insists on pouring the tea herself. And he tells in this book of his first meal with the Queen at Balmoral in Scotland. Afterwards, they washed up together. Can you imagine that, washing up the Queen? She was a very down-to-earth, apparently, not, not afraid of spending time with real people. So rather cheekily, he said, I'll wash and you dry. To which the very firm reply came, no, I'll wash and you dry. It, it wasn't really a discussion. You know, the, the, it, was, it wasn't that he could not do what he was told. He was the servant, she was the Queen. He wasn't there so she could do what he wanted. He was there so that he could do what she wanted. And what we have here revealed in John is the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. 
And Jesus, he's, he's no self-help guru here to teach us whether we can achieve our goals. He, he's no superhero you know, to, to rescue you when you, you get yourself into a, a tight spot. He's actually not in the least bit interested in you and I getting what we want in our life. And that's what the, the world's heroes look like. They're, they're sort of uh, manageable. They're, they're on call, aren't they? They help us when we want. But, but would you really like, say, Spider-Man telling you what to do all the time? Or Superman giving you your priorities for life? No, you just want them to, to come along to rescue you when it all goes wrong. And then you get on and live your own life. And that can be how we treat Jesus. But, but Jesus is the Lord. He is the giver of life-giving food from nowhere. He, he's the, the creator striding across the water. He, he's not going to follow the crowd and their desires. They actually should be asking how they can follow him. You see, Jesus is the great I am, the God who always has been and the God who always will be, the God who deserves our worship. Yes, he's for us. So for us. Yes, he says, don't be afraid. I'm on your side. But he's so for us, he wants us to have what is best, which I have to say is not very often top of our agenda for life. And that's what we're going to see in the, the second half of the passage is, as Jesus shows us what the crowd's real motives are. You see, here is, here is God's rescuer, God himself on earth. But what's the world's agenda versus God's agenda? Because the next day, the, the crowd, they're a little confused. They're looking for Jesus, but he's gone. Uh, they know he didn't get into the only boat. So how did he leave? Uh, and once they track him down, they, they ask a pretty obvious question. It comes in the second half of verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That, that's not really an answer, is it? I mean, I got here at nine o'clock in the morning having walked across the water. That would be an answer. But actually, what Jesus does is he addresses the real issue. This crowd, they're not interested in him as the son of God. That's what the signs pointed to. They're interested in what he can do for them. Uh, what's on their mind is their immediate physical gratification. It was actually exactly the same as their ancestors. Uh, you see, the Israelites, when they were in the desert, when the Lord rescued them from Egypt, they don't spend the rest of their lives going, I'm amazed by your love and your power and your faithfulness, Lord. I'm going to worship you, whatever happens. No, they very quickly start grumbling about their living conditions. We're hungry. I said the Lord gives them manna. It's boring. Manna for breakfast, manna for dinner, manna for tea, manna, 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 manna. So the Lord gives them little birds called quail. Really quite a delicacy. You can probably only buy them in Waitrose these days. But the grumbling goes on. Come on, God. I want you to do what I want. I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. You're not meeting my agenda. And Jesus says to them, you're looking in the wrong place. 
It's actually the same for anyone who goes to the creation to satisfy them rather than going to the creator. And look what Jesus says in verse 27. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. That Son of Man is a way that Jesus talks about himself. He says, come to me for the food you need. Come to the one who God the Father has sent to give you life, eternal life. As we've seen in John, that's not just this life forever. That would be terrible. No, eternal life is life in relationship with God now. Life with a God quality about it. Life with purpose and meaning. Life that has security and status as a child of God that starts today and goes on through death into eternity. But, But they still don't get it. I mean, they like the sound of the food. This is obviously food without a sell-by date. That that was the problem with the manna, by the way. It kept going off on a daily basis. So they say to Jesus, what do we have to do to get this eternal food? And he says, verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. Again, it's been the same all the way through John's gospel. They say, what work do we have to do to get this stuff that we want. And Jesus says, no, God gives eternal life. Believe. You don't earn eternal life. You don't work your way to get it. He gives it. Believe, says Jesus. Not not believe that he can help us out, which he can. Not believe that he can do amazing miracles, which he does. But believe here is the Son of God worthy of your worship. The one who is not just your creator, but you were created to serve. But the problem is that the crowd, they still want Jesus on their terms. I mean, this is ridiculous, isn't it? Verse 31, didn't you think they were stupid here? Verse 30, 30, so they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I mean, how stupid can you be? I mean, if I was Jesus, I'd be going, can't you remember yesterday? You were there, five loaves, two shriveled fish, 5,000 plus of you. It's called a sign. In fact, it's ironic. The quote in from Psalm 78, where it says he gave them bread from heaven to eat, is a psalm all about how God's people are unfaithful, and he is faithful to them. And so this unfaithful people keep asking for a sign. But Jesus doesn't say, no. He teaches them. Oh, oh God, my father, he's the one who gave you the bread in the wilderness. It, it wasn't Moses. And now God, my father, has sent you the true bread you need Verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's what they need. A bread that is personal. Actually, a a bread that is his son. Verse 34, sir, they said, "Always always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, Jesus doesn't give us what we want. 
He doesn't even give us what we think we need. He gives us something far better. He gives us himself. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and you still don't believe. It's not that there isn't evidence. It's not that they don't see the signs. It's actually they have a different agenda. They don't want Jesus. They want what they want. They're blinded by their own self-interests. Now, let me ask you a really simple question. Is your daily life satisfying? I mean, are you truly and deeply content? Not longing for anything. Because isn't that what Jesus promises in verse 35? Never go hungry. Never be thirsty. And I think as Christians, it's easy to say, oh, well, that's, um, that's talking about heaven. I mean, when we get to die and go to be with Jesus, then I'll, I'll feel like that. But, but now I'm just supposed to feel pretty miserable, you know, not getting what I want. But it, it'll be better then. But, but this verse doesn't quite look like that, does it? It looks like more of a profit, promise for today. And the world around us is saying, look, look, to, to, to get this satisfaction, what, what you need is maybe more stuff. Now, we went to a, a parent's presentation um, for Fionn. Uh, she's 10 now, so this was when she was five. And uh, we went to her school, and she's such fun teachers. They were, they were hilarious. But I was interested in the way that they motivated the kids. And I asked them, how, how did they do that? And when a kid did well, they got pretend money that they could then spend in the class shop. And the teacher said, this, this shows them about addition and subtraction. And it tells them, and what we tell them is, if they want to do what they want in the future, they need to work hard and get as much money as possible. That's the world's agenda for life. But, but even as Christians, our problem is, I guess, that so often we're a little bit too much like this crowd, aren't we? That, that's what I'm like. We, we want our fill. Maybe it's material things. So maybe our problem is that we don't have enough food or family or friends or, or free time or fitness. Or maybe our problem is that we have too much food or, or family or free time. And what we do is we keep sort of reordering our lives or imagining how if we could at last reorder our lives, get out of the life that we're in into that better life we imagine, then we'll have what we need. We'll finally stop. Don't you do that? I mean, what that? You've done it probably this week. You've imagined the life that if you just had that, the, the, the craving would stop. The heartache would stop. Maybe it's the pain of that illness gone. Maybe it's that the child just finally doing what they're told. Maybe it's the job that doesn't feel a, a, a drag and a bore. Maybe it's the relationship that will give you the company and, and the tangible love that you need. We, we just, we all do it, don't we? It's there. This is what I need. And Jesus pleads with us. He pleads with you. He says, verse 27, did you see? He pleads. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I'll give you what you need. I'll give it to you. Find your fill 
in worshipping me. I really am enough, says Jesus. And it is, it's by coming to Jesus, by feasting on his love, by tasting his presence, by being nourished by his spirit, that we experience life as we were made to know it. We experience life that is one that, that has a satisfaction about it, a, a contentment. Our problem is, is so often like the crowd, we think we're at the center of the world and, and the job of God and the job of his son Jesus is to rotate around us, giving us what we think we need. And Jesus says, no, actually, actually I'm at the center of the world. I'm the one who fed 5,000 people with a, with a, a picnic and, and, and walked on water. I am the creator. And look what he says in verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That, that really orientates your view of history, doesn't it? You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's not that, that you've, you've just come to Jesus and attached yourself to him. No, in eternity, God the Father chose you and has given you to his Son. You're the gift of God the father to his son and as you come to his son he will never drive you away he is always going to draw you in as one of his people that's who we are and that's, that's fantastic news see our salvation isn't a, a sort of just a deal between us and God oh, I trust in Jesus you know you forgive me no it's the plan at the heart of history it's a deal between God the Father and God the Son. The, the Son has come in obedience to his Father. Jesus has come to save the people he, he's been given. You belong to Jesus. So, so don't orientate your life around yourself. Orientate your life around him, says Jesus Christ. I and mean, look at the security that a life like that brings in verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he's given me, but will raise him up at the last day. Lose none of those he's given me. Every day you can get up and say, I'm the Father's gift to the Son, and the Son will never drive me away, and he, he will never lose me. No, he will never lose me, and one day I'm going to be raised to life forever with him in a perfect new world. Every morning, that is your status. Every night as you go to bed, that is your status. Throughout the day, that is your status. So, so much bigger. Our world says what we need is a, is a full stomach today. Jesus says, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I shall raise them up at the last day. God's will for your life is so much bigger than yours. Isn't that extraordinary? It's so much better than ours. We try to plan a better tomorrow. We strive, we imagine, if I just, if I just could have that, I'll have a better tomorrow. I, I, I was feeling a bit sorry for myself last weekend. I started to imagine the job where I'd have a better tomorrow. It's so easy to do. I'm still here, don't worry. Or maybe you're one of those people, I'm still here, worry. But, but God's word is so much bigger. That there is nothing more precious. Can I say that to you if you're a Christian here this morning? There is nothing more precious than being a person 
who is the Father's gift to the Son. Can you imagine that, that conversation in eternity? God the Father and God the Son. I choose them. They're a wretch. They're a mess. They're screwing up life, left, right, and center. But, but I choose them, and I'm going to make them righteous, Son, through you, through your precious death for them. I'm going to cleanse them. I'm going to send my spirit upon them, and, and they're going to be your gift. Jesus, I'm going to make you look great by giving you them. And you're going to keep them as your people forever. There's nothing more certain than the acceptance Jesus offers. There's nothing more secure than the, the promise Jesus won't lose you. There's nothing more beautiful, more satisfying, more glorious than knowing God now and, and wanting to be with him forever in, in a world without any wants. Now, the application is simple, isn't it? Jesus says, do not work for the food that spoils. And he says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Feed on me, says Jesus. Enjoy your relationship with me. Now and forever, it's a gift. Will you come to me? So will you actively seek to feed on Jesus? I mean, do you think about his love? Do you get up in the morning and think, I am so secure because God loves me in Christ? Do you feed on that truth? Do you open up? His word, and not expect to find a list of things to do or a list of ways to make your life better, but expect to find Christ and to know him better. And next week, we're going to see the second half of John 6 is actually we feed on Jesus as we come to his cross and we see God's love fully and finally demonstrated there and we think, well, if you've nailed your son there for me, I am secure. Nothing can take me from you. What are you feeding your heart's desires on? Because so often we feed our hearts on what the internet brings into our lives or what our friends are talking about in the school playground or what work tells us we need to find security and status or what the financial advisor says will sort out our life when we finally get to retire. If you're like me, it'll be about 92 by the time we get to retire. And we think, that's what I need. And Jesus says, no, don't work for the food that spoils. Don't set your hopes on that. Feed on me. And if, if you're a parent here, and especially if you're a dad here, and one of the things each Sunday I look out and I see sometimes the dads who aren't here, sometimes it's shift work, but sometimes it's, it's they just aren't coming to set their children an example. If you're a dad here, are you feeding your children spiritually? It's interesting in Ephesians 6, when, when the Apostle Paul tells fathers, bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord, literally what it says is, feed them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Feed them Jesus. In, in, the, in social services, they, they have this word called neglect. Neglect would be if your children were malnourished because you weren't feeding them. And I just think there are a lot of Christian dads who commit spiritual neglect so that if your kids have the best diet daily and go to the best clubs in the week and get extrusion and friendships that is all food that spoils in the end none of it's wrong but if they're not hearing the word of God about Jesus daily you're committing spiritual neglect are you feeding them that which lasts to eternal life 
Do we let Jesus come into our conversations? Do we talk about what, well, what we've heard in his word? We've introduced into our staff meeting a time when we, we try and talk about the things the Lord has been saying to me this week. And I and the people there, we find it physically painful because it's so odd for us to talk about Jesus. We can talk about, oh, the sound didn't go very well, or wasn't the music great, or the PowerPoint was a bit blurred. But when we try and talk about Jesus, this happens. And you're paying us to talk about Jesus. Feed your souls, your hearts, on the precious Son of God. He loves you. He cares for you. He's always with you. And he cries out to you, do not work for the food that spoils. But come to me. I'm the bread of life. Find in me the security and the status and the satisfaction that your heart craves. Feed on me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you help me do that? Will we help each other do that? Will we think more about Jesus? Sounds so easy, doesn't it? So hard. Let's try and feed on him. It's a moment's quiet. Maybe there's a particular way that you know you're not feeding on Jesus. Maybe your Bible is dusty on the shelf and you want to dust it down and ask Jesus to reveal himself in that. Maybe your attendance at life group is such that you want to dust down the diary and try and work out how you can get there. Maybe you can't remember the last time you talked with your husband or your wife about Jesus and you want him on the agenda.